Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Let's continue with the next lecture. When there is destruction of all objectivity and the arising of one-pointedness, there is the parinama of samadhi. Hence again, when there is equality between the arising and quieted intentions, there is the parinama of one-pointedness of the mind. By this are similarly explained the parinamas of stability, of designation, and dharma amongst the elements and the senses. Sarva artata ekagratayo kashaya udayao chitasya samadhi parinamaha. Sarva artata ekagratayo kashaya udayao chitasya samadhi parinamaha. Sarva atata ekagratayo kashaya udayao chitasya Samadhi Parinamaha Tataha Punaha Shanto Ditao Tulya Pratyayao Chitasya Ekagrita Parinamaha Tataha Punaha Shanto Ditao Tulya Pratyayao Chitasya Kagrata Parinamaha Tataha Punaha Shanto ditao tulya pratyayao chitasyaikagrita parinamaha etena bhutendrieshu dharma lakshana avista parinama vyakya taha etena bhuta indrieshu dharma Lakshana avista parinama vyakyataha etena bhuta undrieshu dharma lakshana avista parinama vyakyataha. Now, this rather remarkable cascade stages the descent. Sri Aurobindo referred to this whole process of retreat and re-engagement as the descent of consciousness. Now the yogi who has moved into that state of Naroda Parinama, from that place of holding back, from that place of holding things at bay, from that place of holding things in abeyance, from that place of allowing the world a moment before reconstruing the world, that yogi, from that place of mastery, is able in that moment that moment after the suspension of everything, after the objects have disappeared, is able to selectively and with laser-like focus 
to next engage a samadhi parinama, is able to decide, oh, this is the direction to be pursued. And with one-pointed intention arising out of the erasure, arising out of the cancellation of all compulsion to get involved, is able to then generate a mind with purpose, with a seated purpose, not from the past, not from compulsion due to the klesha karmas, but is able to then seed consciousness like one can imagine seeding a rain cloud, so that a samadhi moment comes that says, oh, this is the direction to be taken. And from that samadhi moment, the chitta, the mind construct that constellates through one's intention, out of that quieted place where the emergence and the restraint are held in this delicate, delicate balance, the focused mind becomes a kagrita, becomes an akagrita parinama, a mind with a fixed intention that will allow the parinama, allow the embrace, the outflow to proceed in a chosen direction. So backing up just a little bit, Sarva Naroda. Naroda Parinama, nothing happening. And then Samadhi Parinama, a moment of inspiration that reinvites a seed, but a seed with purpose. And with the invitation of that seed from this rarefied place of samadhi, there is a slight de descent into a kagrita chitta, into a focused mind that reinvites some of the stuff, perhaps of vichara, to return. That this moment of pure calm invites in a seed. The seed takes focus and the mind is ready for the further descent. And this descent then comes down to the realm of the elements, the bhutas, and the senses. And recall in the Sankhya cosmological outflow that precept governs percept, governs that which is perceived. So in other words, the conditionings of the mind predispose the outflow of the senses to connect with the construed world of the elements in a particular way. And what Patanjali does is call out and evoke the elemental process, the bhutas, 
And we know that that's the mixture and the combination of earth, water, fire, air, space, physical realities. It also calls out the indriyas. And we know that there are two sets of indriyas. One, smelling, tasting, seeing, touching, hearing. And the other set of indriyas is digestive, reproductive, holding and giving with the hands, walking with the feet, and speaking with the voice. The embodiment of the world of intention through the senses of both orders, the senses of perception and the senses of action, connect then with the physical world. And this physical world, as advised earlier, must be seen through the prism of its threefold nature. Some of the stuff of the world is heavy, avasta, fixed, tamaguna. Some of the stuff of the world is active, is marked, is lakshana, the stuff of rajas, of activity. And some of the stuff of the world is dharma, is an abiding presence of the subtle that has the potential always of turning toward the ultimate ascent toward sattva. So follow this flow. The flow starts from this place of utter remove the place of Naroda Parinama. Then it comes down with a reintroduction of this notion of yutana, a reintroduction of the emergence of the world, seated with a little bit of purified intent, but nonetheless held in the equipoise of samadhi, And then a further stepping down from that samadhi, the thing not quite yet, into an intended thought. And that would be ekagrata, an intentional one-pointed thought. And then from that one-pointed thought, we step down to the realm of the gunas, to the realm of the vyutana, to the realm of the interactive, to the realm of the differentiated subject, process of perception, process of reaching out, connecting with the material. And that brought to a yoga class can be suggested using perhaps the following analogy, but using the following actual physical process. In advance, you may invite people to think about this process. We don't want them to overthink it. It's better to have the experience and then say, oh, that's what happened, than to over-precondition So you might, over the course of a few sessions, and if you have the gift of steady students, 
then you could introduce this in pieces. There's at least four different phases. In the first phase, perhaps even at the beginning of a yoga class, if you start with samastiti, you start with tribunda, you start with a very cathartic Surya Namaskar, you could perhaps call the class into that place of quiet. And then, I know yoga teachers sometimes like to use the word samkalpa. You might invite in a purified intention. And as yoga teachers, really the universe is full of examples to perhaps suggest, but it could perhaps be even the practice of nonviolence. To seed the mind with an intent to do no harm. Or it could be to encourage the cultivation of reflection upon sat, pure existence. Its expression is satya, authenticity and truth, and the expression of sat as sattva, that guna that inclines toward the sublime. And then through the course, with that as intention, in calling people periodically back to an awareness of that beautiful space of sat, and inviting them to even engage memory or narrative in the style of vichara of moments where they feel that sat, to allow the thought to then thread with imagination and memory to create a body feel grounded in satya, grounded in sattva through the course of that yoga class. And then allow that to both ascend and descend so that as various stagings of this class has taken place, what you then can do from Shavasana is to invite people to feel that complete release, to recall that seeding of that intention towards Sat, that intention toward pure being, that intention toward authenticity, that intention toward sattva. And then invite the students to reflect some of the ideas that arose, reflect in quiet, in shavasana, some of the feelings that stir up when working toward that elevated ground of being and then slowly invite them at the end of the Shavasana period 
as they roll over to one side, to feel their fingers, to feel their toes, to feel the lower realms of the body, to feel the emotions yearning for expression through the throat. And also, as they're on their side, ask them to feel the press of hand upon earth, earth connecting with hand. Ask them to feel either the warmness or the coolness or the moisture within or the moisture without, to feel as they open their eyes how the luminosity is entering their eyes, the form and color, and that as they push up with an inhale breath, that they feel the breath of the body and the air of the room. And as they arise into a seated pose, perhaps for the final chant, perhaps for the final reception of whatever words that you have to share, that they are aware of their emplacement within space. And then invite them as they rise from this working from Narodha to Samadhi to the one-pointed mind, returning to the world of body, of elements, of senses, that as they stand, as they go forward into the world, they re-engage. They re-engage in a way that has been purified by their gift, their gift to self, of allowing them to come in touch with letting the Vyutana, letting the busy world subside during the time and space of yoga, letting them from that place of deep quiet develop an elevated thought, explaining to them that this elevated thought can become a theme, can become an intention, not just at this moment, but an intention that requires attention and care and performance and practice, and that the ground for that practice is to be found within the world itself, within the day-to-day -day actions, within the word spoken, within the gift offered, within that which is taken, given freely by others to oneself, that this is to be found in step after step of the body moving through space. And that this cultivation of re-entry dislocates those fettering karmas, dislocates ignorance and delusion, dislocates ego, attraction and repulsion, and establishes one as a yogi to be in service to others 
and to be mindfully creative of all, all the world that surrounds us, all of the world that supports us, all of the world that presents itself as results of choices, as a result of decisions that we have taken from that place of the purified intention. The Dharma holder follows the Dharma whether in past, present, or future. The cause of the difference between Parinamas is the difference in their succession. From Samyama on the three Parinamas, there is knowledge of past and future. Shanta udita avyapadesya dharma anupati dharmi. Shanta udita avyapadesya dharma anupati dharmi. Shanta udita avyapadesya dharma anupati dharmi. Krama anyatvam parinama anyatve hetuha. Krama anyatvam parinama anyatve hetuha. Krama anyatvam parinama anyatve hetuha. Parinama triyasamyam ad atita anagata gyanam. Parinama triyasamyam ad atita anagata gyanam. Parinama triya samyamad atita anakatagyanam. Now, this discourse about time and Dharma is very, very interesting. And as we follow the threads through, we can make sense of this in our own direct experience. So we need to carry over this idea of Dharma as rendered in the prior sutra with its articulation as Dharma as actually connecting with a person, with someone who holds Dharma. And as we recall, in our last look at this word dharma, just prior, we saw dharma as correlating with the realm of sattva, with the realm of the subtle, and to a certain extent, with the realm of the various samskaras and vasanas that are behind the impetus toward the material, toward action. But what we find coded here is this notion of that subtle finding its expression through one thing following another. Okay, just as we saw in the prior sutras, this descent through Parinama from the very subtle impulse into the granularity of elemental and sensory experience. So also, this sequence of sutras talks about the flow of time, 
the Parinama of time, from the remote past through the present, flowing over into influencing the future. So the way this happens is out of the shanta, out of that which has already taken place, into the urita, the uprising, the present moment, and then avyapadesha is into or toward an undesignated period that will be the future. So those influences that, that linger from that subtle level will manifest not only through the cascade of increasing materiality, but in this other, the parinama, the flowing forth of time from the shanta or the atita, that which has already happened into that which has not yet happened, the avyapadesha or the anagata. So where does this connect this other dimensionality of parinama, this other aspect of accounting for the stuff of life itself, how does this connect with the yoga student? How does this connect and how can we see this even in our own lives? And I think with time, particularly, there can always be an element of surprise, captured in that word, future of Yepidesha, that we don't really know, it's as yet not indicated. Now, in our collection of karmas, our ignorance, our egotism, our attraction, our repulsion, our desire to just keep it moving, we see that there are all varietals, if you will, of samskaras, of asanas, of past life experiences that some may be on hold, may be in a pacified state for quite a while, and then one day something will surprise us. Now in my 30s, I began to lose dear friends from childhood, whose lives for a whole variety of different reasons were brought to an end. And in my 30s, I discovered the beginnings of the grieving process and also discovered that the memories of what was would sometimes be very, very active and the grief would be very present and that other times there would be just a different moment, sometimes years later, where some fragrance or some recollection will remind me of the contribution of that person within the person that I am today. And then there's a reflection about sort of the collapse of time that these friendships, these relatives, now my parents also are past, that these have a granularity to them 
through the continuation of time that will never quite again manifest. These people are no longer here. I can't call them up. I can't go over and visit. But what I do find is that their influence, their guidance, continues to inform what I choose to do in life, the person that I present to the world. Without those who were, there could be no present. And I also see, even within the lives of my own children, that whatever gift that we had in the times when I was um, at home, they were at home, and they all went off to college eventually. But when we get back together, I feel this stuffness of our parent-child relationship carrying forward in the choice of their maid, in the choice of some of their, their um, daily rhythms. And this is an opportunity to really reflect on how Dharma, how that even cultured Dharma in the instance of the more auspicious aspects of our life can carry forward in undetermined ways for the generations that follow. So I think that these sutras are an opportunity to reflect on this all important attention given in Indian philosophy to past, present, and future. Now, how, again, to make this accessible for the everyday yoga student? And I think that we can make it large and broadly philosophical, and we can also make it very specific and small and granular. So let's take that approach first. There's a moment in my memory planted by a really nice cup of coffee that I think could be illustrative of a Dharma-like experience. And some weeks ago, I had a number of people over to the house for an early morning meeting. And in the process of putting that meeting together, I brought in, I don't usually have coffee, I brought in coffee from from a store, came in a box, and I made a little bit of that coffee with a nice dose of half and half, and it tasted so wonderful that when everyone was gone, I noticed, oh, there's still a little bit of this left, and I put it in a jar, put a, a top on, and for a couple of days, I heated that coffee up, and put a little bit of half and half in it and had a moment of experience, had a moment of pleasure, had a moment of enjoyment. And that dharma, which only had an effect for three days, was a result of a seed, in this case, memory of, of good tasting coffee, being planted and then sustaining. It also built a memory that if I 
hold a similar meeting, I will remember which box of coffee to order. And like that, students in group, either small group or large group, can be invited to reflect on how an experience of the past entered the present and how at some undetermined time it might be taken up in the future. Now, all of this is toward a greater sense of self-understanding, and particularly in this third pada, an understanding of power. We have power within our lives, vibhuti, to make a decision, to hold a thought from the past into the present, and then through our capacity of parinama, to reach out, to take the elements of desire in this case, and turn them into a manifest reality. Now let's look broadly at a student's intention to do yoga. One of the interesting um, sort of simmering subtexts of yoga practice is the allure of yoga itself. What brings people to yoga class? So many different stories, so many different influences, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of personal history, a little bit of your friend or your parent or some other relative. Let's go to yoga class. Okay? So something brought people, brought a person to a yoga class. Then, Within that yoga class, as we've described it, something remarkable, something notable might happen. Doesn't happen for everybody, but for many people, this may be a wonderful moment whereby they're able to check in. They're able to feel body. They're able to feel breath. They're able to get a little bit of a glimpse of how it feels to calm down, how it feels to really settle in. And they'll come back, perhaps. The yoga does what yoga can do it could provide this connection that then the person will say, oh, there's something to this. And they may find it within, within their well of desire to enter yoga as path, to enter yoga as a journey, to enter yoga as a pilgrimage, to enter yoga as a marga, as a way. And they can return to yoga, return to yoga, return to yoga. And as we reflect 
on the operative of these three sutras, we see that a seed of dharma has been planted. In this case, the dharma of desiring that taste of connection experienced in that yoga class. And that dharma affects the dharmi, that yoga creates the yogi, that one who possesses dharma, that one who possesses that experience of yoga. So there can be a regularity of return. So the avyapadesha, the unknown when it's going to happen again, could be right the following week. Or it could be that it goes into a latency and that that dharma of having the taste of yoga sort of lingers, becomes a memory, and eventually, maybe not the next week, maybe not even the next month, maybe even not the the following year, but once that seed has been planted, at some time, there may be a return. There may be a return to the same or a different form of yoga, and there may be a re-entry into the rhythm of practice, the rhythm of practice within the class, which is a granular experience, And then, with a little bit of encouragement, the suggestion on the part of the yoga teacher can be made to all of the gathered yoga students that just as this time, which is designed and created for you here and now, has been, I think, hopefully, a moment of wonderful for you, So also the invitation can be given out to the yoga student that that time, that flow, that parinama from the past into the present stands within your grasp, that you can take what you have learned and apply this at your own will, in your own time, in your own space. And the beauty of a yoga teacher is that the yoga teacher can prescribe, can assign, can invite a yoga student to develop a home practice so that the moment of one class can be a moment of a home practice, 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 and then a return to the yoga class, taking in new information, taking in new technique, and that allows the building of an intentional life through self-power that gradually will allow that student of yoga to truly become aware of past, present, and future, 
to truly become aware of this parinama, this outflow relationship between the subtle and the gross, and allow the gradual ascent toward an abiding wisdom. From the overlapping here and there of words, purposes, and intentions, there is confusion. From contemplation on the distinctions of them, there is knowledge of the language of all beings. From the perception of karmic residues, there is knowledge of previous births. Similarly, from perception of another's intention, there is knowledge of another mind. But this is without evidence because there is no condition of it in the elements. Shabda arta pratyayanam itara itara adhyasat samkaras tat tat prabhaga Samyamat sarvabhuta ruta gyanam. Shabda arta pratyayanam itara itara adhyasat samkaras tat pravibhaga samyamat sarvabhuta ruta gyanam. Shabda arta pratyayanam itara itara adhyasat Samkaras tat pradvibhaga samyamat sarva bhuta ruta gyanam. Samskara sakshat karanat purva jati gyanam. Samskara sakshat karanat purva jati gyanam. Samskara sakshat karanat purva jati gyanam. Pratyayasya parachitta gyanam. Pratyayasya parachitta gyanam. Pratyayasya parachitta gyanam. Na cha tat salambanam. Tasya av vishai bhutatvat. Na cha tat salambanam tasya avishai bhutatvat na cha tat salambanam tasya avishai bhutatvat Okay, this wonderful collection of sutras brings us directly into the realm that many would consider to be the paranormal. This has to do with being able to understand a language, a language that you may not even have studied. It has to do with understanding one's own past lives, and it also accounts for how we can engage in telepathy, meaning how we can figure out what other people are thinking. 
Now, on the one hand, as we go through these examples, they're going to be made plausible, and we're going to see that from examples provided, that yeah, we can see a connection to these various powers that arise through the performance of yoga. But we're also going to be mindful that, according to Patanjali, we can't be 100% sure because the evidence is not in front of us. We have no proof that, in fact, the conjecture is nothing other than a good guess. However, because of some family background experience I've had, as well as some of my own encounters with what's included in these sutras, I'd like to put a word in for the paranormal and state that it all makes sense in the yogic vision, the yogic construal of the, word, of the world and the word, depending upon intention, depending on the flowing forth of the parinama, of the landing of physical reality, reliant upon prior conditioning. So let's start with his explanation of language. Language involves an object referred to in language. It involves a sound. It involves a little bit of meaning and emotion. And one of the remarkable gifts of people born into polyglot societies, whether it be India or Europe, or if you're born into the United States of parents who speak different languages and choose to continue to use those languages, is a child coming up into, the, into, into adulthood, children are a sponge when it comes to language. Those of us who did not have the benefit of being in a polyglot context, who have in fact gone through the process of language acquisition. I grew up near Canada. My father, in fact, came from Canada and Canadians learn French. So we learned French, my group of friends, in high school. And then I decided to add in Spanish and learned as the language acquisition specialist had framed it, that there are certain structures that can be anticipated. So in making the transition from learning French to learning Spanish, already some of the grammar forms were recognizable and some of the patterns, both of vocabulary and of grammar itself, although the patterns and the particulars were different, there was enough overlap that you could use one language as a toehold into another language. And then as I went on into university studies of Sanskrit and Tibetan, found similar overlaps. The orthography, the letters of Tibetan are borrowed from the Devanagari of India. 
the grammatical analysis, not the case endings, but the grammatical analysis in Tibetan follows the grammatical analysis of Sanskrit. So what's being spoken of here does make some sense, particularly for people that grow up learning and hearing many different languages. If a new language, particularly in the same family of languages, shows up, then it may in fact be possible to ferret out some meaning and get a close approximation of content. Now, my own direct experience, I'm often in India where lectures are being given in Hindi. And although I've had a little bit of instruction in Hindi, really have never learned Hindi, but quite often these lectures are quite laden with Sanskrit terminology, and it becomes possible to sort of get the gist of what's happening. Similarly, by listening closely to Spanish language television, and by reading intonation and body language and facial expression, there can be a little bit of a hook in. And similarly, the language of animals. We know when a cat is communicating hunger. We know when a cat is communicating displeasure, aloofness. We know with its entire body and soul Maybe it needs to whine to, for emphasis or bark for emphasis, but we know what a dog experiences simply by experiencing the presence that they exude and the needs that they carefully express and the moods that they invite, particularly that mood of comfort that we see with a beloved pet. We're able to figure out what they're about. Now, past lives. I had a good friend and colleague some years in the distant past who had been involved with past life regression hypnotherapy. And he had trained in this, and he had a small practice for a short period of time, and then he became a professor of philosophy and he, following all the proper channels, got permission to do an experiment with student volunteers. And the student volunteers presented with a level of anxiety that they themselves could not account for. And what he did was to sort of do a psychotherapeutic intake and then he would hypnotize them, and then he would invite them to go deeper and deeper and deeper into past memories. And because they were under hypnosis, they had no recollection, but he then shared the story that was told, and when he shared that told story, there was a diminishment of anxiety because they could put a narrative explanation to that source of anxiety. Now, another instance comes from Ian Stevenson. He was professor before his passing of medicine at the University of Virginia for 50 years. 
And for 50 years, he sought out young children, usually under the age of four, who would have these spontaneous stories they would tell. And then he would try to figure out, could this possibly have happened? And in his published literature, claims to have shown in multiple instances where children with spontaneous memories were connected with past lives where an event happened that they had recalled as very, very young children. And one of the findings from this broad study that took place over decades involving thousands of persons is that quite often a birthmark would register in a place where something horrible had happened in a prior life. So a little bit of material evidence going against what Patanjali says is that maybe you can figure it out, maybe you can't, but this notion of the benefit of understanding past lives can help, first of all, relieve the, the burden of blaming everything on your parents or on your siblings, and also perhaps bring a little bit of sense of that sort of calm that comes with the aha moment of making connections. To have a story to account for the story can be quite comforting and also a little bit of fun. Now the third piece, which is telepathy, is one in which my own family has some rather interesting direct knowledge. In the 1930s, there was a scholar at Duke University called J.B. Rhine, who had established what came to be called the, the J.B. Rhine Institute, and he did a nationwide search for people with telepathic inclinations. And lo and behold, my 16, 17-year-old mother, who was a precocious college student, had been part of the talent search, and she, for a semester, went from the University of Buffalo to Duke University in the late 1930s. And she sat with different people and performed these telepathic experiments. And the experiments involve five cards, circle, square, triangle, squiggle, and a fifth image, I forget what it was, but they would first set up partners, one on one side of a screen, one on the other side of the screen, and then eventually she really fell into sync with this one particular woman. And as a child growing up, I would be told these stories and then other very fun stories, too numerous to share, about how this talent uh, became just part of what my mother had done for many, many years, both with my father and anticipating our needs as children. But back to Duke, they would separate them with a screen, separate them with a room, separate them from a building, separate them, put them in lead-lined rooms, separate them by city even, 
And remarkably, not at 100%, but in test after test after test, whether sending or receiving, my mother scored extremely high on the telepathy scale and became convinced herself that there is this vibratory realm through which we can communicate. All we need to do is to be able to tune in. And in so many ways, when now we see people with cell phones, apparently the scientists did figure out, starting with Marconi, that yeah, there is this realm of vibratory emission and we can channel it. So whenever you're on the cell phone, you're really engaging in a little bit of technology-assisted telepathy, and there's also a telepathic connection that allows you to, particularly with people that you know well, but not always someone you know well, to be able to get a sense of their bodily experience, their bodily feel, and perhaps all the way down to a specific thought. As one works with the realm of samyama, grounded on pratyahara, as one becomes inward, as one develops focus of the mind, one in fact can be quite open to reading the thoughts and the body language of others. And I remember in the early years of my yoga career, when I was traveling by train from the heart of Manhattan to the outer reaches of the Bronx and back a few times a week in graduate school, one day I was riding a little bit earlier in the day than usual southward, and this woman and her boyfriend husband walked into the train he was quite alarmed, and her face looked utterly stunned. And as I looked at that young woman, this raging pain registered in a very specific tooth. And although I didn't bother with the confirmation, I just knew that they were escorting themselves, he was escorting her to the dentist to take care of this absolutely wretched physical tooth pain, which passed as they made their way further and deeper into the subway car. But that was a very visceral telepathic moment that I would attribute to my openness to whatever it was that that woman was experiencing. Now, in terms of how to make this work in a yoga class, it can be quite wonderful, I think, to ask students. And I've been teaching undergraduates over the course of many years. And one of the things that I like to ask them about, just sort of random, if you've had a precognitive dream, if you've had a dream, and then you find yourself in the situation of that dream, just raise your hand. I used to have them do it silently and not indicate, but no, just about every young person has had some experience of a precognitive dream. And this 
goes to what was stated earlier about the parinama, the flowing forth of time, and this notion that in terms of our dream life, there can really be a discontinuity, and sometimes there can be blowback from the future that we experience in the present, just as there can be a flashback from the past that we experience in the present. So this whole notion of psychic phenomenon is taken very seriously in yoga with the suggestion that by paying close attention to the power of suspension of the static from the past to be fully in the present, we can open ourselves to truly understanding something from the deep past and perhaps even anticipating something yet to happen in the future. From Samyama on the form of the body arises the ability to suspend the power of grasping and disconnect the eye from light, resulting in concealment. Karma is either in motion or not in motion. From Samyama on this, or from natural phenomena boding misfortune, there is knowledge of death. By samyama on friendliness and so forth, corresponding powers arise. By samyama on power, powers arise like the strength of an elephant and so forth. Due to the casting of light on a sense activity, knowledge arises of the subtle, the concealed, and the distant. Kaya rupa samyama tad grahya shakti stambe chakshu prakasha asam prayoge antar dhanam. Kaya rupa samyama tad grahya shakti stambe chakshushu prakasha asam prayoge antar dhanam. Kaya rupa samyama tad grahya shakti stambe chakshu prakasha asam prayoge antar dhanam. Sopakramam nirupakramam cha karma tat samyama aparanta gyanam arishtyebhyo va. Sopakramam nirupakramam cha karma tat samyamad aparanta gyanam arishtebhyo va. Sopakramam nirupakramam cha karma tat samyamad aparanta gyanam arishtebhyo va. Maitri adishubalani 
Maitri Arishu Balani, Maitri Arishu Balani, Baleshu Hasti Baladani, Baleshu Hasti Baladani, Baleshu Hasti Baladani, Praverti Aloka. Nyasa Sukshma Vyavahita Virprakrshta Gyanam Pravriti Aloka Nyasa Sukshma Vyavahita Virprakrshta Gyanam Pravriti Aloka Nyasa Sukshma Vyavahita Virprakrshta Gyanam power, rather remarkable powers. And the first one listed here designates an ability to evade detection. And on the one hand, it sounds just a little bit too otherworldly, perhaps. Like, how can you make yourself invisible? How can you just throw an invisibility cloak over yourself. But as I worked with this and reflected on my own experiences and experiences of others, it occurred to me that there have been moments when in the presence of others, whether at a party or a large gathering, that there was an ability to not make eye contact, to just sort of blend in and not be noticed by others. And actually, it was being in India that taught me the reverse, that the moment that my eye would catch the eye of someone begging, then I became real to them and they became real to me. But by averting the eye, there was an ability not to become real, not to stand out for that person. And this signaled the connection of the power of the eye, that when we connect through the eye, we come into form. When we don't connect with the eye, we remain unseen. Second, prognostication of death. Now, death has become quite removed from family view, from public view today. Overwhelming numbers of deaths in the modern era take place in hospitals. But in times past, and still in many places throughout the world, death would be part of the rhythm of life. Child mortality, 50% up until the advent of modern medicine. 25% of women died as a result of childbirth, 
And the aged would live in the company of family. And as they would go into a decline, cared for within an extended household where all brothers would be under the same roof with their families. A family compound would be perhaps dozens of people, not a nuclear unit. So that there was currency, there was a working knowledge of when death begins to knock. Now in my own experience, I've been with the sick, with the dying, close to death, and I've come to recognize, particularly with people with terminal respiratory illness, this fragrance and this lack of energy that overcomes the body shortly before death. And I've been able to say goodbye to loved ones, to colleagues, in that place of being close to death. And in India, to be able to honor the passing from one life to another is an important moment. And although the narratives are very different from Hinduism, schools of Buddhism, in Jainism, about that transition, there's an assurance given both to the dying and to those that remain that the body is making a transition to another life. And the job of those sitting with those who are in the process of passing from this body is to give encouragement, to give inspiration to those people so that as they go through that transition process to a new body, it will be a positive experience. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, the literature from the Upanishads, the literature from the Jain narratives and the Jain manuals actually advise that being conscious and aware at the time of death is the best way to die, and also that death is inevitable. And as much as we try to deny the ultimacy of death, death is ultimate for all that we know, all that we love, as well as for ourselves. So bringing up the topic of death, provides a platform for conversation about preparation and about providing support. Now the next power is an ethical power. And as we recall from the very first pada, Maitri, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeksha, friendliness for those that are happy, compassion for those who suffer, sympathetic joy for those who excel, and equanimity toward those persons who lack virtue. What a wonderful skill 
a skill that also requires a little bit of samyama, requires a little bit of con contemplating what's presented in this situation and how might I must, how might I best manifest an appropriate emotional response. So to be able to know, oh, using a little bit of that third sense or sixth sense, whatever we want to call it, we know that, oh, this is a person who is really of goodwill and friendly, or this is a person who suffers deeply. This is a person of great excellence, and this is a person who others may revile, but I'm going to remain even-minded while in the company of this person. And this makes the world all around a more discerning, a more open, a more welcoming place. This is a wonderful power. It's a gift to oneself, and it's a gift to others. Now, I think we've all been in the presence of an elephant. And I remember some years ago when our basketball team was nationally renowned, and Shaquille O'Neal, who is absolutely massive, was playing on our court, and I timed his warm-up so that I could just walk by Shaquille O'Neal and feel my smallness and just feel the immense power of that remarkable frame. And we have the capacity, it's been well documented of people lifting automobiles off the bodies of loved ones and rescuing that loved one. And I think that we've all had an experience where we discovered either a moral strength or even a physical strength within that surprised us. And as bodybuilding came into popularity, and even later, skill and particularly advanced asana came into popularity, it became sort of a challenge for people to imagine, to feature themselves, and to do some samyama on lifting a very heavy weight or moving into a very difficult yoga asana. And that, again, speaks to this power of samyama to work from the realm of the dharma, work from the realm of the elevated thought, to feature that thought, bring it into one-pointedness of mind, and then through that one-pointedness of mind, to deliver it into the stuff of the body organs, into the limbs of the body, into that connection in the realm of the manifest. So again, this parinama bowing down to a particular skill, giving honor to it, focusing upon it, emulating it, all of this can result in bringing into reality something that was seated 
within the imagination, seated within will and desire. Now, how to translate these particular powers into the student experience? First of all, students might be invited to share a moment where they experienced anonymity, where they were able to be somewhere and not have to be someone. Many people, in fact, come to yoga class so that they will not be detected. And I remember having a very large yoga life on Long Island in the 70s and in the 80s, moving to Los Angeles and going to yoga classes with a trove of experience and yet remaining utterly anonymous. And then someone sort of giving the nod, oh, you're pretty good at this, and then just staying silent, being an anonymous yogi. And that was lovely in many, many ways to not have the burden of identity. Some professionals will go to conferences and merely learn, merely be auditors in the presence of experts, even though they may be equally qualified to be in the position of presenter, another way of going a little bit invisible. Those are the sorts of sort of um, conversations that could be brought about amongst the students. And then talking about death, a somber topic, but a topic that a yoga teacher can provide in terms of service. Every human being, sooner or later, experiences loss. And to invite a small conversation amongst groups of students about their experiences of death, perhaps even in the context of entering Shavasana, saying that our body eventually will assume this pose and inviting people to perhaps share of delicate moments wherein a loved one passed and by simply being present, they felt a fullness and a sense of completion and then reminding students of those verses from the Bhagavad Gita that point out that the body changes, the body passes, and yet there's something of the person that continues. I think we can evoke events, a little bit of hope from our students by a measured reflection upon death. And then a challenge, a practice, to encourage students in their day-to-day -day walking about to think about, is this a happy person? Is this a person in need? Is this a person of great virtue? Is this a person not to be avoided, but to be observed with equipoise? And this concern for the other 
can really help cultivate an innate, appropriate moral response. Friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. And then two more. One, become strong. And then the other is that by doing samyama on a situation, by just simply observing the circumstance, sometimes you are able to really understand exactly what has gone on, exactly what has been concealed or hidden, and anticipate what may eventually come to pass. So this all-purpose cultivation of intuition allows you, through your samyama, to be a keen observer of human behavior, simultaneously invites you, because of this skill, to develop empathy, to develop a feeling of fellowship with other humans, with animals, and allow that ability of yoga to bring you increasingly to a place of increasing goodness, of increasing happiness, again, because of that fellow feeling with others. From Samyama on the sun arises knowledge of the world. From Samyama on the moon, knowledge of the ordering of the stars. From Samyama on the polar star, knowledge of the movement of the stars. From Samyama on the solar plexus, knowledge of the ordering of the body. From Samyama on the tortoise channel, stability. From Samyama on the light in the head, vision of perfected ones. Or from intuition, everything. Bhuvana Gyanam Surya Samyama. Bhuvana Gyanam Surya Samyamat. Bhuvana Gyanam Surya Samyamat. Chandre Tara Vyuhagyanam. Chandre Tara Vyuhagyanam. Chandre Tara Vyuhagyanam. Dhruve Tad Gati Gyanam. Dhruve Tad Gati Gyanam. Dhruve tad gati jnanam. Nabhi chakre kaya vyuha jnanam. Nabhi chakre kaya vyuha jnanam. Nabhi chakre 
kaya vyuhagyanam. Kantakupe kashupipasa nivritihi, Kantakupe kashupipasa nivritihi, Kantakupe kashupipasa nivritihi. Kurma nadyam styriam, Kurma nadyam styriam, Kurma nadyam styriam. Murdha jyotishi, Siddha darshanam, Murdha jyotishi, Siddha darshanam, Murdha jyotishi, Siddha darshanam. Pratibhad va sarvam, Pratibhad va sarvam, Pratibhad va sarvam. Ah, such wonderful symmetry, the macrocosmos and the microcosmos. And we start with reflection from and upon the sun. And if you come into a place of intimacy with the movement of the sun, you come to understand the entire world. Second, if you watch the phases of the moon and you watch their motion and their change throughout the night sky, you come to notice how the moon passes through the various constellations. Third, find the North Star and then get up at different watches of the night and see how the stars revolve around that north point. It'll evoke in you a sense of wonder, a sense of awe. The externals, sun, moon, stars, and now the internal. Beginning with the solar plexus, that sun rising every morning, illuminating the world, so also we have this heat at the center of our body. Think of the da Vinci beautiful painting, line drawing of the man his center of gravity right in here. This is the heat source that digests our food. And through knowing that place, that place of heat, that place into which the breath descends, we can know how the entire body works. And then keeping up with that digestive theme, if we rise up into our throat, the location of thirst, the location of hunger, and if we're able to truly direct our samyama there, we're able to still that hunger, gain the skill of fasting, 
place that urge into a place of nivriti. And this zone of the body is also the zone of so many profound emotions. We choke up in our throat at times of deep emotionality. And we're able to bring that to a place of stability through our samyama. Now the kurma nadi, I know many different commentaries, many different traditions, but some would say that when the tortoise draws in its limbs, that there's an elevation to this area, the pineal gland, the front of the brain, this place that we know is activated through neuroscience in moments of meditation and prayer, and that when we're able to focus our energy there, we're able to gain styrium, stability, sta, standing. Many people, hundreds of millions every morning in India, adorn themselves on this space, recognizing this place as spiritual center, using that adornment as a way of signaling to the world this connection with a higher focus to one's energy. And as one gains skill with beginning energetically to rise through those rivers, through those nadis, toward the swa. Perfected ones, siddhas, may gift you with a vision that connects seemingly with a heavenly realm. And your inspiration can come from a feeling that you're not alone that there are, in fact, personages, men and women who have, in fact, moved beyond all karma. In the Jain tradition, they call it the Siddhaloka, and they actually have portraits of the people dwelling in that place of ultimate freedom. And in their freedom, all of these people display a youthful body, perfectly proportioned, radiating through its representation in white marble. And to be in a place where people meditate on such exalted beings can be quite elevating in a beautiful, beautiful way. Buddha images, similarly, are images of those who have transcended into the Siddha Loka. So from here to here to here to here to here, hey, how wonderful. And then Patanjali suggests Pratibhad, from your intuition, from your ability to just Simply be present. Your samyama can reveal sarva, can reveal everything that needs to be known.
So how to translate this for the contemporary yoga student? I have a lot of different ideas, and part of, um, part of these ideas include how do your students interpret this? Does this speak to their condition? Does this speak to their experience in any way? But in order to get the conversation moving, let's start first with sun, moon, and stars. The advice to all yogis is to rise with the rising sun and to acknowledge the setting sun. And this can be brought to different levels of specificity. Now, in my own practice, I do rise, generally before the rising sun, and I'm blessed to be in an area, although I've done this in other climates where it was not the case, but generally I can all go out every day of the year, not worry about cold, not worry about wet, but I walk, I walk every morning, and if it's particularly a clear morning, I walk up to a ridge up above behind my house, and from that ridge, I can time myself to be there at sunrise. And in the winter, close to the winter solstice, the sun rises deep to the south, rises over Orange County, in mid-year, the sun rises directly to the east over Mount Jacinto. And in the time of the equinox, the summer, okay, in the time of the equinox, it's in the middle, and then the summer solstice in that month toward the end of June, that particular day, the sun will rise over the San Gabriel Mountains. So San Gabriel Mountains, Mount Jacinto, Saddleback Mountain, these become markers like Stonehenge for the movement of time throughout the year. And then from my office, I face the ocean, and I love noting how the sun changes. In the summertime, it rises over the Santa Monica Mountains, far to the northwest. During the equinox, it sets directly into the ocean. And during the winter, it just disappears to the southwest, into the bluff, into the land. But again, having an attunement to this rhythm gives me a knowledge of the passage of time, gives me a knowledge of immediate geographic location. And this is important for a yogi. Similarly, the moon. The moon follows the patterning of the sun. The moon becomes full at a time of the month where the full moon is rising as the sun is setting. 
and then the phases of the moon go all the way to new moon. And I love looking with surety during these changes, noting where the moon is happening in the different constellations and appreciating all of the different phases, all of the different changes that happen not only on a seasonal basis, but also on a weekly basis, on a daily basis with the change of moon. And then the North Star. This one eluded me, but if your yoga group has an opportunity, there's many festivals that occur out in places like Joshua Tree, even Burning Man, I'm not so sure that that's as much of a yogic experience, but camping, wherever it may happen, encourage your students to note the Big Dipper, to find the North Star, and then as they wake up through the night, or even encourage them to get up during the night and watch as the firmament makes that transition. And you feel that you're part of the cosmos. And then the chakras. It's important to note that these body energy centers are not the exact same ones that are found in various other texts, but it's also important to note that there are many, many different numberings of chakras, many different namings of them, systems of 12, systems of subdivisions of that 12, systems of six, systems of seven. But in the Yoga Sutra, we might invite yoga students to reflect upon how their stomach becomes a check-in place for their hunger, for their discomfort. And I would share even my own small story of being at a time in my life when there were a lot of demands, a lot of stress, and I had a stomach ache. And learning that if I could just relax the musculature and allow that stomach to relax, and allow those digestive juices to follow their normal course, that I was able to come and return to a place of emotional stability. To reflect, as I suggested earlier, about all of the emotions that well up in the throat, and some, for some it's too personal, for some others might be willing to share, but there's many people who have had experiences, frontal lobe experiences that give them a sense of well-being. People who have even felt a connection, an almost uncanny connection with the sense of not being alone, with having companions and protectors. And then invite students just to share their own opportunities for intuition. And on the one hand, Patanjali has already warned us that your intuition may not always be correct, 
that the world does not always affirm what you might imagine or want to will to be. But usually most people can find some small example of having a premonition, of having a sense that both in connecting with the universe as well as connecting with a gut feel or a throat feel or an elevated insight, that we're part of something a little bit uncanny, a little bit larger than ourselves, and that those moments of connecting with the beyond are moments that help relax the grip of the klishta karmas, help relax the, the grip of ignorance and egoism and attachment and repulsion. And it's also important as we transition into the next segment to honor Patanjali's placement of the heart. The greatest center, the center through which we become fully human and through which we receive that human capacity to at least momentarily transcend our humanity, all of that occurs in the heart. Hrid, hridaya, shradha, in placing our trust in the heart, exploring the emotions, exploring the gifts of the heart, through the heart, we become receptive. Through the heart, we manifest compassion. Through the heart, we empower connection. And through the heart and in the heart, we find our true yoga. From Samyama on the heart arises understanding of the mind. When there is no distinction of intention between the pure seer and illumination, there is the experience of the purpose of the scene. And from the contemplation on the purpose of the scene, there is knowledge of the true self. Hence are born intuitive hearing, touching, seeing, tasting, and smelling. These powers are impediments to samadhi, even though in the world they are perfections. Hridaye chitta samvit. Hridaye chitta samvit. Hridaye chitta samvit. Sattva purushayor atyanta asam kirnayo ha pratyaya avishesho bhoga para artatvat svarta. Samyamat 
Purusha Gyanam Satva Purusha Yor Adyanta Am Sam Kirna Yoha Pratyaya Avishesho Bogaha Para Artatvat Svarta Samyamat Purusha Gyanam Satva Purusha Yor Atyanta asam kirnayoha pratyaya avishesho bogaha para artatvat svarta samyamat purusha gyanam tataha prativa shravana vedana adarsha asvada varta Jayante Tataha Pratiba Shravana Vedana Adarsha Aswara Varta Jayante Tataha Pratiba Shravana Vedana Adarsha Aswara Varta Jayante Te Samada Upasarga Vyutane Sirayaha Te Samada Upasarga Vyutane Sirayaha Te Samada Upasarga Vyutane Sirayaha Now returning to this ascent of energy through the nadis, through the rivers that exist and flow through the body, arising from that powerhouse of heat in the solar plexus, up to the throat, the head, the top of the head, beyond it all, settles back within the heart. And in that blessed place of the heart arises the presence, the felt presence of a sattva, of an illuminated state, of that highest, that most refined of gunas, that comes in close proximity to that silent witness, to that place of the seer, to Purusha. And as the sattva aligns with the Purusha, in that moment of heartfelt immediacy, then a knowledge comes simultaneously into being that allows one to understand that all of the purpose of experience, all of the experiences of enjoyment, all of this dance within 
the realm of the manifest world, that all of this has as its intention the purpose of rising up to the swa, the purpose of rising up to the swa atman, one's true self, the swa rupa, one's true form, the satya and the sattva, the authenticity and the illumination. And rather, and, and the grammar works quite beautifully here in terms of playing with the relationship between what is called the genitive or the possessive and the accusative or the optative. So what we find Patanjali expressing is that this is the knowledge of Purusha and this is Purusha's knowledge. And the distinction here is that the paradox is that Purusha can really not have anything, that Purusha is none other than purified knowledge itself, and yet how to name that wonderful moment, that wonderful congressence, that wonderful epiphany, that wonderful, like, oh, this is what it's all about, that aha moment, that aha moment that is our freedom, that aha moment that dwells within our heart, our heart of empathy, that spirit of forgiveness for all that has transpired within the realms of tamas, of heaviness, of rajas, of often frenzied activity. Why? Why? Why experience? Why boga? Why enjoyment? Why the difficulty and the sorrow? And what this verse elegantly calls to our attention is that we experience all of the ups and downs. We experience every vyutana, every manifestation in the realm of the senses and the elements exclusively for the sake of the witness consciousness. Now when this happens, out of this experience, as we learn to perhaps linger in that delicate place of alignment and balance, where our sattva is brought up to the remarkable realm of equipoise, then we're able to receive wonderful experiences in the realm of listening. Wonderful, really enlightened experiences in the realm of touch. Wonderful 
relationships with the realm of beauty, of taste, of fragrance. And with this comes a sense of mastery. With this comes a sense hailed also in the Upanishads that yes, it is possible to move through the things of the world with full enjoyment of the things of the world without the impediment, without the instructions of the klishta karmas, to be fully present to the world without ego and be fully appreciative of this remarkable, in a sense, floating within the realm of sense enjoyment. And yet, Patanjali further cautions and says that ultimately, these experiences, these experiences of blissful buoyancy can, in fact, provide an occasion for attachment, can, in fact, perhaps block that ability of moving toward sarva naroda and within the realm of the vyutana remember we have the vyutana the realm of objective reality the realm of experience the realm of boga and we have the realm of naroda of the stoppage of the halting in the realm of Utana, to be in that place of blissful, unimpeded, direct, immediate, sensory experience, for that we find perfection. Within that we find perfection. And by learning how to play, learning how to celebrate as well as elevate. This is a beautiful way of describing the optimal rhythm of the good life. Now, as a yoga teacher, you find yourself having to model these experiences these moments of aha, and also having to negotiate and to navigate how to allow those moments of clarity, that chitta prasada, to extend and to linger, but without having it fall into ego, without having it contract in a way that closes off the heart and shuts the door to an abiding, radiant buoyancy. So, as a teacher, it's important to share, on occasion, 
not in an overbearing way, but it's important to share moments of clarity and bliss that have been gifted by yoga practice. And every morning I sit, generally either facing a wall of windows or outside on the patio, accompanied by an ever watchful tree, a bottle brush tree, a tree that every morning holds surprises. Nearby is a fountain. In front of the fountain, a kindled flame, a little bit of incense. And for the sustained period of sadhana, there is a floating, a reciprocity of the color of the tree, its many visitors, the squirrel that hops off the roof, the hummingbirds that come by, the vireos in the spring and in the late fall who migrate. All of this life presents itself pure enjoyment, pure boga, all pointing to that place of an expectancy and a witnessing and a celebration in that present moment becomes a moment of perfection. And then after the period of pranayama, asana, a little bit of chanting, the gazing, the focusing, the dharana, a little bit of dhyana, samadhi, From that experience of the upavarga, from that experience of just feeling complete, then the day unfolds. Then the re-engagement with the vyutana, the re-engagement with breakfast, with the newspaper, with getting organized for the day. And the humility that arises through taking up that next task that needs to be done. So with your students, having shared maybe a little bit of your own experience of, at least momentarily, for a kashana, for an instant, having the embrace of full presence, it may be only a split second, but find it, reflect on it, re-inhabit it, share it, and then ask, ask your students, either in small groups, small groups work exceedingly well, because quite often peer-to-peer is much easier than having to present to the teacher, and you don't need to hear everything, but ask your students to come up with their own examples of having a glimpse of the world being exactly what it needs to be, a glimpse of their own moment of elation, celebration. And in that, a small community, particularly, say, a group of three or four, that small community will 
by nature of the material being discussed, that small community will go into a place of mutual affirmation. And many times people will discount their experiences, but with a little bit of encouragement, even the saddest of the sad will generally be able to surface a memory, a memory of feeling unencumbered. It might be from deep childhood. It might be from the yoga asana class that just took place. It might be utterly unrelated to yoga per se. But by creating that samskara of that sense of freedom, by bringing this to the fore of memory, the building of a spiritual life can become the go-to place. Another way to approach this is to invite your students as a yoga teacher, even in the large group, and also perhaps more effectively in the small group, to invite your students to come up every morning with a list of things to be remembered and appreciated. Something as simple as, oh, I appreciate the gift of breakfast, replete with blueberries and bananas and peaches when they're in season, whatever that simple joy may present, but one appreciation, an appreciation for important people in one's life, an appreciation for the beauties of nature, an appreciation for this part of yoga that invites us to watch the rising sun through the course of the four seasons, to watch the movement of the moon as it goes through its phases every 28 days, to watch the stars and the constellations as well as to appreciate the operations of the human body from the heat of the belly to the elevated, vaunted states of bliss to the connected abode of the heart. Thanks for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Discover more episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills.